So that was some music from Yemen. Uh, coming up, Subversity. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We had now back to the Subversity show here on KUCI. This is Dan Zhang. Uh, today we're going to be talking about... Um, um, Yemen, uh, a country that has uh, been uh, facing the effects of the turmoil uh, that started in Tunisia, went on to Egypt, and has affected regional states, states in the region, including Yemen. And with us to discuss that is our two uh, specialists, uh, two people who have been focusing on the peace movement uh, regarding uh, Yemen. And one is... Uh, Will Picard and the other is Dana Moss and Dana is a um, graduate student in sociology uh, focusing on social movements oh oh welcome to the show welcome thank you so much for having us we're so happy to be here glad to be here the uh, yeah um, how did you get involved in uh, focusing on Yemen well um, I first visited Yemen uh, 11 years ago or so in uh, 1999 um, sort of as, a, as a, a vacation and a learning experience and um, I was just in high school at the time and I really fell in love with the country and got to know a lot of people and got to know the country and uh, started studying Arabic and started studying Yemeni history and politics back then and ever since I've been uh, fascinated by the country um, so Dana and I went back in 2009 to study Arabic there. Yeah, that was my that was my first time. So we enrolled in a program at the Yemen College of Middle Eastern Studies, which is a Arabic language school in the capital. And we spent the summer there in 2009. I got a chance to volunteer for one of the human rights organizations in the capital there called the Cultural Development Programs Foundation, which, despite its uh, innocuous-sounding name, is actually a major player in civil society there. And then the following summer, we returned for vacation, which, uh, you know, nobody can believe, but we <laughs> did, and we got a chance to um, talk with students and, and things about our, our about our initiative and our, our organization, which is called the Yemen Peace Project. Yeah, um, we founded the Yemen Peace Project just over a year ago um, with the, the aims of uh, educating the American public about Yemen, because it's uh, often ignored in the press and in academia, um, of advocating for a constructive and peaceful uh, foreign policy towards Yemen, and also um, with the goal of building avenues for communication between everyday Yemenis and Americans, um, which we do through a variety of means right now. Yeah, it seems like the country is kind of off the uh, radar of the media. That's right. Of even of the mainstream media, definitely, there's nothing really, very little, unless there's a uh, some bombing or something. And exactly, to, that that's part of the problem. You know. Unless there's a, a Christmas Day underwear bomber or something really, really extraordinary of that nature, uh, Yemen isn't paid paid attention to much in the media. But it plays an important role in our foreign policy, and of course, an important role in the region. So that's one of the things that we've been trying to uh, discuss with people, both you know, here and elsewhere. It's a poor country, right? Is it, um, I mean, how, what, what is it like for the regular person there? It's, uh, it's, Yemen's definitely the poorest of the Arab states. Um, about half of the population 
lives below the poverty line, um, which means they're subsisting on less than $2 a day. Um, mm -hmm. And a huge percentage of the population lacks access to clean, reliable water. Um, and the employment rate is always between 30 and 40 percent. Um, right now, Yemen has one of the largest population growth rates in the world, which means that the population is overwhelmingly young. Um, nearly half the population, I think, is uh, below the age of 30. Uh, mm -hmm. Most of them unemployed, even those uh, with educations. And you see that across the region, but in Yemen, the problem is amplified so much because they lack... Uh, uh, they they lack a, a, a resource sector. There's not a lot of oil there. There's fewer avenues for employment uh, than you see in a lot of the other Middle Eastern countries. In addition, you have a, a crisis of agriculture, so people are absolutely flooding to the capital, Sana'a, uh, from other regions. And so you have uh, Sana'a being one of the fastest-growing capitals, I think the fastest-growing capital right. in the entire world. Huh. And, of course... Uh, there's no infrastructure to support those people. So around the center of the city, the slums and yeah. the, uh, the areas where people are coming to live are just growing at an, an incredible rate that is not sustainable. Is, is it a desert area or not? Or is it a no, the, the area, well, it has desert in it, but the area around the capital um, is mountainous uh, and actually has quite a high elevation, I think about 8,000 feet above sea level or something. So it's quite mountainous, quite high up and, and uh, cooler than uh, people think people think uh, sand <laughs> a lot of times when we tell them where we've been <laughs> uh, so you have the Red Sea coast uh, which is very humid and hot then you have uh, a large mountainous area and then you have uh, the desert to the east so a Aden Aden uh, yeah. Aden is that near the coast right yes yeah that's and that's the that's, big port city that's on the southern coast um, and uh, it's still uh, a very mountainous area there up until the coastline itself but there are several different sort of climate systems and, and uh. topographical systems in Yemen. Uh, it's a very geographically diverse country. Mm -hmm. So historically, was it a part of the British Empire before? Um, Aden was, Aden was and, yeah. and the area around it in, in what became South Yemen. Um, the north of the country, the capital and the area around that and further north, was never uh, a British uh, possession. Mm. At mm. times it was nominally part of the Ottoman Empire, but generally... Uh, Yemeni uh, polities ruled their own affairs in the north. Is there still a ins uh, is there an insurgency in the south now? Or what? Since uh, 2007, there's been a very active uh, secessionist movement in mm. the south, centered in the towns of Aden and Abyan and other parts of what used to be South Yemen. You had, uh, essentially, the British were thrown out of South Yemen in 1967, Around the same time, there was a revolution in the north, which established a democratic republic. And north and south Yemen then unified in 1990. But since then, northern politicians and power holders have been dominant in the country. Mm -hmm. The president is a northerner, um, and he's uh, very intent on maintaining power and has seen the south as... Uh, an area to exploit but not to enfranchise and so southern resentment has always been high but in 2007 it really started to come to the fore and become mainstream so now in the south um, most of the people I think in some some international polls have had as much as 70 to 75 percent of the of southern Yemenis supporting secession 
and independence. When we were in Aden, it was quite remarkable to me. I always think of uh, colonialism as yeah. something that people despise. And uh, But when we were talking to, especially some of the older people that we met, it was really interesting how nostalgic they were for British rule because after <laughs> the British <laughs> left, uh, there was a, the, a socialist republic and they really felt like their rights were trampled huh. on much more then. And, and now that it's uh, not... You know, neither a, a British colonial state yeah. nor the Socialist Republic. It's it's been very interesting, and and the South has not been at all well integrated into the country in a way that they feel like they're being represented. So it's caused huge tensions and and given way to a secessionist movement. We should note though that the secessionist movement in the South, by and large, has been peaceful. The Northern government has mm. tried to paint it as more of an insurgent movement and, al and also tried to link it to Al-Qaeda, yeah, which yeah. is active in the South. But in fact, there's, there's no real link between the two, and most secessionist leaders insist on a peaceful political movement. So you think they're saying that just to try to get Western help? That's right, and to yeah. discredit it uh -huh. in the eyes of other regional powers. Yeah. Um, yeah. The more you... And, and Yemen's government tries to do this with all of their internal threats. Mm -hmm. The insurgency in the far north of Yemen, um, which is led by uh, Zaidi Shia uh, revivalists. Houthi. Houthi, yeah. Houthi, Houthi. Um, the Houthi movement. Um, the government has tried to link the Houthi movement to Iran mm. simply because they're Shia, but they're not the same type of Shia. Oh, they're not yeah. the same sect as Iranian yeah. Shia. Um, simply because they know that plays well with Saudis and with the Americans, and they've been using um, Saudi and American help to fight this insurgency in the north instead of treating it as a legitimate political movement that needs to be addressed uh, through political channels. And so they do the same thing in the south. They think if they can link the southern movement to al-Qaeda, then they, they can treat it as they see fit. They can use repressive tactics without any punishment or without any repercussions. And speaking of yeah. the Yemeni protests, one thing that's very interesting um, about the recent protests is that they've been characterized as largely being inspired by Tunisia and Egypt, and to a large extent that may be true, but it's important to know, too, that there is a, a culture of protest in Yemen mm. uh, such that protests have been happening almost on a daily basis, if not a weekly basis, in the South for years at this mm. point, and, and those protesters have been treated very harshly. The uh, live ammunition has been used against them and so on. Um, that really hasn't gotten a lot of press or attention, but it's imp kind of important to keep in mind when we think about, you know, the dynamics and uh, when we think about whether or not the protests in Yemen right now and in, else, and in other places, whether they're really spontaneous or not, mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me that they're part of a larger, longer picture of, of protest events that have been happening uh, throughout the country for some time. So, so there's a whole history of this before. Mm -hmm. how, how about this? Uh, is there any uh, um, analogy to what's happening t in the Sudan? We just voted, uh, this, is it Southern Sudan just voted yesterday to mm -hmm. secede? And there's this history of, uh, I guess, racism, I suppose. The Northerners were treating them as more, more black because, uh, you know... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it's racist. I think it's, but it's certainly cultural. Yeah, as since neither one of us is really a, a Sudan specialist, I'm hesitant yeah, to comment. Yeah. But I know that Sudan's recent history there are uh, there are racial dynamics at work and religious dynamics at work. Um, in Yemen, there is a lot more cultural diversity than in some Arab states, but at the same time, 
between north and south, there's no racial divide. There's no religious divide. There is, however, a cultural divide, um, not just because of the history of one side of the country being a socialist republic and the other one not, mm. but because of older cultural systems, uh, the tribal systems, which are different in the two car- parts of the country, a lot of Southerners uh, have had certain resentments and certain historical prejudices against Northerners mm-hmm. and vice versa. And that extends beyond the borders of the Old South and the Old North in Yemen. There are cities, very big cities in, in what is what has always been North Yemen. Um, mm. Taiz is one of them, which has been sort of a, an intellectual heartland of Yemen and has sympathies with the South and has always uh, felt um, resentful tor- towards uh, Northern culture. So there are cultural uh, divides in Yemen, but none that are quite as stark or easy to to blame for any sort of internal discord as you see in Sudan. Mm-hmm. How about uh, back to your uh, own uh, development uh, there? Mm. <laughs> when you st- what attracted you to studying uh, Arabic? And is there uh, are there regional colloquialisms that are different from country to country? I mean, or can you use the same Arabic to talk to people in other countries? That's a really good question. So there's a modern standard form of mm-hmm. Arabic that uh, one learns when one learns it in the classroom in the United States and, and abroad as well. There are colloquial dialects that range a great deal across yeah. the Middle East, such that um, one of my former Arabic teachers who had been fluent in the language for 25 years had very difficult time understanding her Moroccan in-laws. And uh, so, so it's very, very different, and it ranges a lot. The really great thing about studying Arabic in Yemen is that, well, there are a couple of reasons. One is that you're really forced to use the language in, in a day-to-day. It's not like Beirut or Cairo, where a lot of times you can get away with English or yeah. French, or at least so I've heard. Uh-huh. Um, in Yemen, you really are forced to use the language on a day-to-day basis, which is really excellent. Second, I feel like... Relatively, at least, the colloquial dialect, the stuff that's spoken on the street, is, is resembles the stuff you learn in the classroom enough that huh. it, it really is helpful and, and understandable for the most part. Um, so that was really, really, uh, it was really a wonderful place to study. And I know that uh, it, its student populations have dropped so much, uh, but Yemen has been, up till very recently, a great place and a, and a popular place for students to go study Arabic. How about studying it here? Is is the Arabic taught here different? Uh, the Arabic is standard. Uh, the Arabic taught here is standard. Yeah, yeah, you can. I mean, if your teacher's willing, they can always teach you the colloquial kind of on the side. But mm. unless you have a big Arabic department, they, you know, colloquial sure, usually yeah. set aside. Yeah, so. yeah. Can you understand movies then when you watch? Uh, <laughs> <films>. <laughs> movies where they speak very very slowly yeah maybe like children's <laughs> movies <laughs> it's a tough language uh, to say the least um, yeah. but it's always a work in progress yeah, I think right. people who've been studying yeah. it for decades will tell you the same thing so I try not to get disheartened <laughs> <laughs> but how about newspapers can you um, you can read the newspapers then easy, more easy than yeah, um, yeah. I, I, Dana and I are uh, not fluent and we wouldn't say that we were but no. uh, with a di- with a good dictionary by my side I can definitely read the Yemeni oh. newspapers uh, uh, and I've actually we one thing that we've done recently on the Yemen Peace Project website um, is translations of statements put out by Al-Qaeda in Yemen oh, wow. because these are these usually go untranslated and very few people are qualified to comment on them um, mm-hmm. but yeah. they, they're important so we've been translating some of those so that uh, a broader audience can have access to these documents, these does, primary uh, sources. Does Google Translate do anything? <laughs> uh, Google uh, Translate has gotten 
much better in recent years when it comes to <laughs> Arabic, but I still don't rely on it. I have to retranslate I it. Yeah. <laughs> I think for one or two. One, I know for Chinese or Vietnamese, I, I try to use it for Vietnamese sometimes because mm. my Vietnamese is very rustic. I, I learned a little bit. And uh, it, it doesn't work for sentences, I think. It works, sometimes works for, I mean, even for Chinese, it works for certain words. Mm. You can try to get the simplified Chinese out of it. and. Or, or vice versa. And, yeah, uh, I find even when we plug yeah. stuff into Google Translate, we still have to double check it by looking yeah. it up anyway. So I just usually bypass yeah. Google Translate altogether. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is sort of uh, an important issue in a way for us because one of the initiatives that the Yemen Peace Project has been working on recently is um, online discussion boards where uh, we yeah. can involve our American volunteers and our volunteers in Yemen in discussions about current events uh, in Yemen and the region and we uh, we have been trying very hard to encourage our Yemeni participants to participate in Arabic, to write in Arabic. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, we envision a day when uh, the discussion boards will be popular enough that it'll take all of our time just to keep up with <laughs> translating back and forth. Yeah. Um, but that's very exciting to us that we and some of our other volunteers at least have the capability to do that. So we really can provide a way for Yemenis and Americans to, to talk and to understand each other and to share opinions yeah. and ideas in a way that, that's not often done. And that's, I think, a powerful program that we're launching that, that's going to be very important in the coming years. And, it's, and it means a lot, I know, to, to our Yemeni volunteers, uh, a lot of students that we've met in Yemen recently, that Americans are taking an interest in getting beyond the headlines and beyond the media coverage to really get to know Yemen a little bit better and it means a lot to our American participants that they have uh, what's really a rare opportunity to, to gain some first-hand knowledge uh, from inside the country. I think they were actually emotionally touched by our visit to the Amidi Center in Sana'a, not like, you know, we're some special emissaries or whatever, but they were just, they were genuinely, I think, really excited that somebody cares, you know, somebody's actually going to take the yeah. time to talk to them and hear what they have to say. and. And the more that you talk to Yemeni students uh, who are involved with our Pens for Peace program, our online discussion forums, who are on Facebook, whatever, the more you realize what a diversity of opinion that they have about their country, about politics. And that's been really, really interesting to see. So we have uh, co-directors and members who don't uh, always agree with, uh, you know, our personal opinions about things, but we can still come together to do some good work together, which has been a really wonderful thing. Yeah. Do they treat you like um, uh, somebody from the imperialist America or something? Or how how do you well, I f- I find celebrate that? that I mean, most, most Yemenis that we've talked to when we've been in Yemen, students and just shopkeepers, teachers, anybody, anybody we've met, um, for the most part, people are very suspicious and even resentful towards the U.S. Mm. as a world power and as a state. But at the same time... Their Yemeni people, not to stereotype, but it's just true, are exceedingly kind and hospitable mm-hmm. and welcoming. And you always feel that you're being treated as, as a fellow human being, um, mm-hmm. regardless of whether you're American. And uh, to add to the complexity, um, Yemenis, and I think a lot of people in the Middle East, still have this sense that the USA can be, and has been at certain points in the past, a force for good in the world. Uh, despite how how hard it is to see that today, in my <laughs> opinion, yeah, yeah. and how damaging U.S. foreign policy has been to the Middle East, Amer- uh, Yemenis uh, 
especially southern Yemenis who harbor uh, resentment towards other global powers, um, see the U.S. as a place that could, if it wants to be, uh, a really positive force in Yemen. And um, they know that with the right foreign policy, which is to say a different one than we have today, um, the U.S. could really contribute to sustainable development in Yemen, to real peacemaking efforts in Yemen. Mm -hmm. So people uh, that, in our experience, um, any resentment that they may have is, is tempered by, by hopefulness. Uh, that said, though, w there was certainly a difference. Uh, we went in the summer of 2009 and in 2010, and in 2009, everywhere we went, people would um, talk about Obama and how amazing it was that Obama <laughs> was the president and how, how excited they were. And a year Obama later... Obama got a thumbs up from every person that's right. that we met in 2009. A year later, that enthusiasm had certainly been dampened. Totally um, deflated, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, this is after a couple of American-sponsored uh, bombing raids that killed a lot of Yemeni civilians. Mm. Um, and after just uh, very obvious and unnuanced American support for the Yemeni regime. Uh, and Yemenis, even pro-regime Yemenis, had really sort of lost any sort of uh, enthusiasm that they had at first for the Obama presidency as being a real change, a real policy shift from mm -hmm. the Bush years. In fact, those bombings that Will just referred to are, are part of the reasons, a, a compelling reason that we started the Yemen Peace Project. Do you want to explain yeah sure just uh, uh briefly for those who may not uh, remember in mm. december of um 2000 2009 um the united states launched a couple of uh cruise missile attacks and supported mm. yemeni uh, commando raids essentially on uh suspected al-qaeda strongholds in yemen in a couple of different spots uh, the cruise missile attacks took the lives of, all told, about 100 Yemeni civilians and mm. caused more injuries, um, killing maybe a handful of al-Qaeda operatives. At most. At most. But a lot of uh, men and women and children who just happened to live there and, uh, and hadn't done anything wrong. Um, the Yemeni government, and this is very uncharacteristic for Yemen, eventually apologized for these strikes and for the civilian casualties that they caused. Uh, the Obama administration never did anything of the sort. In fact, they congratulated Yemen's president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, on the attacks and said that this was the way that we can expect to go forward in fighting al-Qaeda. There was never any acknowledgement from the U.S. on the fact that civilians had been killed or that these same targets could have been taken in a police action rather than, you know, a, a guided missile strike. So, and this was seen as a model for the way that the United States should deal with terrorism. That's right. Abroad. It was also um, was os it? ostensibly the the impetus for Al Qaeda's attempted bombing of the U.S. airliner in Detroit, the Christmas Day bombing, um, which probably they had been planning for a while. But at the in the moment, this gave them a re this gave them an excuse. This gave them something to blame oh, America for. This was afterwards, after the U.S. That's, uh, that's right. Oh, the, okay. This was a, our uh, the U.S. cruise missile attacks were a week and a half before Christmas, I believe. Mm. Um, and uh, so, with with the U.S. stamp so firmly on actions like that, it's really hard for even Yemenis who aren't political or who, are, who think favorably of the Yemeni regime, um, it's hard for them to, to, feel, to feel good about America and to feel good about what we're trying to do over there right now. It was especially upsetting because 
you know, the bombs that they were dropping on Yemen, first of all, had a big old Made in the USA stamp on them. I mean, it couldn't have been even more obvious, that, you know, who was behind the violence. And, you know, secondly, that the United States government applauded it so vocally, while even the Yemeni government, which you will never catch apologizing for anything, expressed some remorse over, over it. And it was a completely untransparent process this sort of proxy war or whatever you want to call it yeah we um, didn't we were very up, we didn't upset need WikiLeaks it. to make clear who had who had dropped the bombs exactly. even though um american newspapers acted like it was a revelation when those cables were released mm-hmm. that that had the president of yemen clearly stating that these were american attacks also mm-hmm. the bombs themselves cost half a million a pop um and so when we talk about in some of the presentations we've We've given the amount of foreign military aid that we give to Yemen versus the humanitarian aid, which amounts to something like, I want to say, less than $3 per Yemeni person. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, there's huge disparity there. The humanitarian aid that we give to Yemen, despite all the talk of the State Department claiming that this is what we need to be doing for Yemen, it's just not there. They're not putting their money where their mouth is at all, even though some smart people say, including Hillary Clinton and others, that that's what we should be doing. That's right. Yeah, there have been a lot of statements recently um, from Hillary Clinton and the State Department uh, acknowledging that Yemen has deep structural problems that need to be addressed if anything's to be done about the threat of terrorism. But that sort of talk doesn't really match up with the actions and with spending. And it's so clear so just transparent that America's approach to Yemen is focused entirely on counterterrorism or so-called counterterrorism, mm-hmm. and that the humanitarian concerns, the political concerns, democratization, this sort of thing, uh, real development in a country that has uh, almost no water reserves, no petroleum, uh, a food crisis, an, an education crisis. Um, that the U.S. Is, has no plan on addressing these things at all, no matter what uh, our government may say. And it really can't be stressed enough how serious the water crisis of Yemen is. I mean, this is a concern in a lot of countries, but Yemen will be mm. the first country in the world to run out of water mm. completely, and it could happen in this decade or even in the next five years, according to some estimates. Um, so all sorts of development programs need to be happening, mm. and there are, there's a whole uh, sector of civil society on the ground right now, a bunch of Canadian NGOs. European NGOs, people ready to, uh, you know, do something about this. But the money isn't there. The government will uh, by the Yemenis isn't there. There's a lot of corruption happening where projects just aren't getting off the ground. So that's another uh, really disturbing thing that's um, going to catch up to everyone really, really soon. And Yemenis face that problem every day. According to the World Health Organization, I believe the average Yemeni has, you know, only about 5 to 10% of the amount of water they need per month. So that means, like, when you, for example, when you go around the country to travel, the bathrooms, the public bathrooms don't have water in them. You know, I mean, it just is so obvious that it leads to, you know, unsanitary conditions, health problems, and just general, general lack of (laughs) sustainable resources for people. Where's the money going? I'm reading um, a... um uh, Congressional Research Service uh, analysis, and it said that uh, the Defense Department uh, assistance to Yemen has increased in recent years, and in 2010 it was uh, uh, offering 150 million dollars in mm-hmm. military assistance, and 
and other assistance was uh, U.S. assistance was hundreds. Uh, uh, they for 2011 they wanted to give 106 million in in regular part foreign assistance apart from military, I think. But where did all that money go then? Well, the uh, the military aid in the last couple of years, and it's increasing again in 2011. And in fact, there are some within the U.S. Senate and uh, certain certainly in the Yemeni government also who are pushing for a package that goes into the billions. Um, yeah, yeah. This is targeted towards... Like Egypt, I guess. So. Yeah. This is targeted towards counterterrorism. Right mm. now, the U.S. is building counterterrorism units in uh, Yemen. Um, to rehabilitate people from Guantanamo? No, that, no not those programs have been stopped at oh, U.S. insistence. Uh, Yemen did have a leading program um, right. for, for rehabilitation of quote-unquote terrorists, but the U.S. has insisted that that stop and has uh, refused to return any Yemeni detainees from Guantanamo to Yemen. Um, so now this military assistant mm. is going to build special military units in Yemen uh, which coincidentally are commanded by um, a r close relative of the president. Um, <laughs> and um, hmm. along with those counterterrorism military units, there have been uh, supplies such as new military helicopters um, and parts for aircraft, um, missiles and missile launching units, stuff like that. And... Um, while it looks like in certain years, if you just look at the numbers, that military aid and humanitarian aid to Yemen are roughly on par, the fact is that that humanitarian aid still goes directly to the Saleh regime, uh, to the Yemeni government. It doesn't, and that means it's not going to get to Yemeni civil society. It's not going to carry out these needed developmental reforms. Uh, it's going to go into somebody's pocket. It, ostensibly, it'll be budgeted out to a committee for something or other, but mm. the money's not going to be uh, used for anything positive on the ground. Meanwhile, every penny of that military aid is being spent on guns, on training, on missiles that are being deployed not just against al-Qaeda, even though that's what the Obama administration says it wants. These weapons and this military training are being deployed against President Saleh's internal enemies, hmm. against the, uh, the rebels in the far north, against southern secessionists who have, been, uh, who have had peaceful demonstrations met with tanks and artillery hmm. in recent years. This is what uh, U.S. military aid is really doing in Yemen. It's helping the president and his very small circle of power maintain and consolidate their, their rule. Uh, it's not going to making Yemen peaceful or, or more stable. It's certainly not going to help with the al-Qaeda situation because, as Will said, the money is not going just to fight al-Qaeda. In fact, it's going to consolidate the president's power. And I'd just like to mention that the organization that I volunteered for in 2009 at the time was working on a big project because by all world development indicators, Yemen has one of the least mm -hmm. transparent governments in the entire world. Um, so there's a big push in civil society for uh, an improvement in transparency and accountability by the federal government, but uh, the United States has not put any conditions on their funding for that to happen. So there's no incentive for the president to be accountable for where that aid goes. We're talking with uh, Dana Moss and Will Picard from the Yemen Peace Project. Uh, this is Subversity here on KUCI with Dan Zhang. Um, I wanted to follow up on um, what were the recent developments then that um, since the Tunisian thing and um, what was this February 3rd protest? What was that about? Oh, yeah, we can definitely talk about that. Yeah, thanks so much for bringing that up. So uh, in 
in I think most of the Western and, and global media, there's been this narrative since the Tunisian Revolution started um, that these events were inspiring unrest and protest throughout the region. And to an extent, that's been true. You can see some of the same slogans and some of the same causes mentioned in Egypt, in Jordan, in Yemen, Algeria. Uh, so there's definitely an effect by which people, activists, opposition leaders in all of these countries are learning f from the experience of each other. Um, but, as Dana mentioned before, Yemen has a culture of protest, and not only in the South, but all over the country, there have been, there's, there have been activists at work, there have been protests against government policy uh, on a constant basis for years. But um, the recent events in Tunis and then uh, in Egypt have really um, given an, an impetus and have given, I think, confidence to mm -hmm. uh, reformists, to activists, and to opposition party leaders all over the world, and especially in Yemen. So in Yemen recently, um, you had uh, a protest movement that uh, really picked up steam organizing for protests on, on February 3rd. Uh, and there are there's another round of demonstrations planned for this Thursday, the 10th. And... Um, yeah, so essentially the the protests uh, were, you know, um, led by a, bu a bunch of students from Sana'a University and a bunch of um, just ordinary folks who had organized, uh, as far as I know, from online, mm. you know, online social networking. But um, one thing that I found a little bit perplexing uh, in the media narrative was it's, it's as if all uh, protests now uh, inspired by Tunisia and Egypt or not, are now measured to that model. So what you see is a bunch of commentators in The Guardian and elsewhere calling the Yemeni protests a failure. And I think part of the reason that they're saying that sort of thing or judging them in that way is because the Yemeni protests in the capital and in other places are not um, revolutions. They're not uh, designed to uh, control... Kick out, kick out the president. Exactly. Well... They're not designed to occupy public space for 24 hours a day, oh, yeah. um, and there's there's definitely in Yemen less solidarity around this issue. I would I would think, mm. uh, at least from what I've read. So, mm. um, so the movement is picking up steam, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes. But I would just caution people from, you know, assuming that nothing's going to happen or nothing's coming of it because they're not as, you know, wildly disruptive as the protests in Cairo and Alexandria and other places. But yeah. is it to oust the, the regime at well, all? Well, it's tricky. Um, if you look at the protests right now in Egypt, uh, everyone notes that there's a pretty broad coalition of forces involved. Uh, in Yemen, it seems to be an even more complex landscape in the opposition. You have a lot of sources that will tell you that the protests on February 3rd and upcoming protests are planned and organized by the main political opposition bloc, what's known as the Joint Meeting Parties, which mm -hmm. is a coalition of several opposition parties that are legitimate and part of the political mainstream to some extent. And uh, while the Joint Meeting Parties, or JMP, have been at the forefront of organizing protests, they're not necessarily calling all the shots here. There are also student groups, as Dana mentioned. There are yeah. independent activists, who, some of whom are members of these opposition parties, but who speak outside of that framework. And in Yemen, as a lot of uh, other commentators have noted recently, uh, party loyalty is not, and really never has been, 
the dominant identification of anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, people mm-hmm. identify regionally. They identify by family, by tribe, by by their city of birth. By, parties are something that exist and are a big part of the political landscape, but they're not anyone's primary loyalty. So when you say these are, it, when when some journalists say that these are protests organized by opposition parties, that's only part of the truth. You have all of these student groups. You have groups that have been organized via Facebook, even though. Internet connectivity in Yemen is uh, almost non-existent. And the associational sector. I mean, one thing that happens a lot of times is when you have very weak political parties is people stop investing in political party and party membership, and they move to the associational sector. So you have a very uh, diverse contingent of people uh, from various associations. Some are part of the protests, and some, even though they are pro-democratic, have not been because, in a way this uh, more recent public movement may may complicate their work in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of people, in order to survive and exist in, the, in this sort of environment, have very carefully cultivated uh, governmental ties and things so that they can exist survive. and run yeah. their organizations and yeah. get work done. And uh, like the the uh, organization I volunteered for have been massively successful in registering women to vote because women are allowed to vote in Yemen. Women can run for for uh, parliament, so they've been massively successful in training women to to vote. But but they're they don't really have sort of a good way to fit into the protests that are happening right now. So so that's an interesting sort of point about the diversity of, of pro-democratic groups. Not yeah. everybody can sort of just drop what they're doing yeah. and go march in the streets. It's just that doesn't work. It's not yeah. working quite like These, that. These uh, civil society um, um, NGOs and stuff, are they uh, funded in part by the U.S. at all? Uh, a very few of them do receive some money from USAID. A lot um, of a lot of them get their grants from abroad because yeah. in Europe, a lot of European initiatives. Um, because there yeah. are lots of European countries like the Netherlands and and others that are interested in funding programs yeah. in Yemen. Right now, there's still a lot more EU money, a lot more Chinese money, and a lot more Arab money in Yemen yeah. in the Yemeni civil sector than there is American money. Um, We've confronted this problem, too. It's very difficult to try and get a funding structure together to, um, you know, invest in Yemen or or put put money towards pro-democratic activities in Yemen. You know, you you really do risk quite seriously, you know, accusations of funding terrorism, I think, at least in this current climate. Um, So maybe more institutional organizations wouldn't come across that barrier. But I feel like smaller people like us certainly have to take that sort of thing into consideration. Yeah, Yeah, the the CRS, the Congressional Research Service, has a table showing uh, countries that do fund uh, the pledge uh, foreign aid to to uh, Yemen, and the top three countries are UK, Germany, and France. That's right, and Mm -hmm. the Yemeni government today is still saying that they haven't seen a penny of the money from the so-called Friends of Yemen uh, meeting. Um, So so it's hard to say what's been spent already, what's been promised, and what's been uh, purloined by the government. And in terms of uh, multilateral agencies, uh, Arab Fund for Social Development, uh, $785 million, supposedly mm-hmm. pledge. Uh, World Bank, uh, the IDA there, and then Arab Monetary Fund, mm-hmm. and Islamic Development Bank, and then the folk, other countries uh, in the area, Saudi Arabia is, is the highest, and United Arab Emirates, and Qatar. Yeah, Saudi Arabia is an interesting case. Yeah, Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia's funding of programs in Yemen um, is 
very important to keep in mind in everything that that we consider in Yemen because it has it never comes without strings. Oh, I see. Um, uh. For instance, Yemen's public education system is drastically underfunded and under infrastructured. Um, so many Yemenis are illiterate or functionally illiterate or undereducated. Students are required to go to school, but there aren't enough schools for them. So there aren't enough schools. What there yeah. what there are and have been since the seventies are um, so-called scientific institutes, which are uh, Wahhabi Islamist-tinged uh, yeah. schools funded and built by the Saudi government. Um, and those have been springing up in Yemen for three decades now, especially in rural areas where the government is not building schools and where the government is systematically underserving its population. Yeah. So you have this alternative. It's either your children can be illiterate and unemployed or they can go to the Saudi school and maybe be taught a religious and cultural system that's uh, at odds with their uh, family's history, with their upbringing, and that um, really is designed to introduce this this new political force in Yemen. Um, and since Saudi Arabia has been Yemen's largest funder, and beyond that, um, Yemen's largest employer, because millions and yeah. millions of Yemeni men go to work in Saudi Arabia. All oh, right, yeah. Um, and a lot of the Yemeni economy is based on remittances from that sector. Uh -huh. uh, it's hard for the government to maintain any sort of independence in policy, domestic or foreign policy, from Saudi Arabia. Why? Why wouldn't the U.S. Uh, let the the detainees in Guantanamo? There's about sixty and ninety people still there, right? Oh, Something like that, yeah. yeah. It's the Yemenis make up, I think, the largest uh, nationality in Guantanamo. Yeah, out of 181 detainees that remained incarcerated, it seems. Why, why wouldn't the U.S. want them to, or has Obama given up closing the camps there? Well, uh, he's certainly not succeeding on closing the camp, but he's uh, stopped uh, any sort of, any uh, releases to Yemen um, because the U.S. decided that it didn't trust Yemen's rehabilitation program, and it thought that people released from U.S. custody were going back to Yemen and re-entering the terrorist networks there. Um, in some cases that we know of, I think it's been the case that Yemenis who were detained by, by the United States uh, unjustly uh, went back to Yemen and joined terrorist networks for the first time. Uh, because they'd been, because of their resentment, or because they'd been radicalized in U.S. Uh, custody, but um, to me, this sort of, even if there was sort of a revolving door um, from U.S. incarceration back to Yemen, that wouldn't be particularly remarkable to me. Uh, the root causes of the terrorism that exists in Yemen and organizations like Al Qaeda have nothing to do with uh, whether or not we release people back to the Yemeni authorities. They have to do with this, uh, the, the fact that the Yemeni government is underserving its people um, and does nothing to address the disenfranchisement and the lack of opportunities that Yemenis face. And in some rural parts of Yemen, you will find villages where the government has, for decades and decades, refused to build schools or hospitals. And then all of a sudden a few Al-Qaeda operatives come in and say, well, we can find you four teachers right now. We can build you a school. Mm. Uh, all you have to do is let us stay here. And in that way, they've been building ties uh, between Al-Qaeda and uh, local communities in Yemen in a way that you can't fault these local communities for accepting. Um, 
you can't uh, expect somebody to turn away their only chance to have a school, their only chance to have medical care. Or a well. Or a well, or, you know, um, any sort of local income, um, just because the, uh, the people who are providing it uh, are not friends of the United States or the Yemeni regime. Which is why our foreign policy, you know, tactic of bombing villages that harbor mm-hmm. al-Qaeda operatives is not going to work and in fact is going to be completely counterproductive in this case because the al-Qaeda members are are smart and they need a place to live so if they're going to embed themselves in these villages then the solution is clearly not to bomb every village that has an al-Qaeda member in it but unfortunately that's what happened last year and that's what's making people even more upset obviously and making us more upset and plans for the future you've seen in pakistan and afghanistan how in love the obama administration is with drone warfare and with uh... what it thinks of as surgical military strikes and covert operations but it's these sort of things that have just caused um, according to some sources in the thousands of civilian casualties in pakistan already and you can expect the same thing because that's what's on the table now for Yemen in the coming years. And we think it's we're being so slick by using drones, but in fact it's causing massive destruction and anti-American sentiment beyond, uh, you know, what it was before. So that's becoming a real problem, and that's something that um, uh, the Yemen Peace Project is trying to talk to Americans about. And surgical strikes are never very precise. There's always <laughs> no. natural damage, so good. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, I have with me a, a, a printout from WikiLeaks, and this one relates to the, the detainee situation. So this was a 2009 March uh, uh, Sana'a embassy, uh, U.S. embassy uh, cable, and it's saying that the, the Yemeni government uh, doesn't want to... Uh, doesn't want the uh, is opposed to U.S. proposal to send the at that time the Guantanamo detainees to the Saudi rehab center. Um, they rather build one in Yemen. Is mm-hmm. that right? At that time, yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, unfortunately, the the U.S. government never was never comfortable with that with that option with the Yemeni rehabilitation system. They might have been right in suspecting that it that it wasn't the most effective. Um, I think, though, and I'm, this is not my area of particular expertise, yeah. but in some cases it seems that the Saudi rehabilitation program has been more about creating um, intelligence assets for the Saudi government oh. than actually rehabilitating anyone. Um, they they take in uh, former detainees. Yeah, um, yeah. Sometimes those people end up once again on the battlefield for al-Qaeda. Sometimes they end up in the employ of the Saudi secret police um, so it's hard to say what's really going on in those centers. Yeah, yeah. And the uh, so do you think that Obama has given up uh, closing the camp because they can't convict people in uh, civilian courts easily? I feel yeah. like it, they're at a total stalemate right now. Yeah, I'm not sure what his real goal is, whether, he's still, whether he has any real commitment to this uh, or whether it's just rhetoric on his part. But he campaigned it's, on it's, it. Yeah. He did. He campaigned on a lot of things. But it's very clear that a Republican Congress isn't going to let it happen, oh, whether see. he wants it or yeah, not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is, do you think Yemen is, Yemen is only on the radar of the administration because of the threat from al-Qaeda they, they perceive? And uh, from people, you know, bombing and stuff, and uh, that's right. Uh, bombing airplanes, civilian airplanes. Absolutely. Yeah. If if um, 
al-Qaeda in Yemen were to disappear tomorrow, um, the U.S. US aid, humanitarian and military, would just drop. And mm. we saw that before um, in, in uh, what was it, uh, uh, 2000, when the uh, USS Cole was destroyed oh, yeah. in Aden Harbor. Um, that's when U.S. interest in Yemen picked up again, and we funded counterterrorism operations there. And around 2003, it looked like President Saleh and his regime had defeated al-Qaeda in Yemen. And once that happened, you'll see from 2003 until 2006, uh, USAID just plummets, almost disappears. Mm. And then in 2006, al-Qaeda in Yemen starts up again, and the USAID starts up again. So it's very... It's very transparent, very obvious, if, if you just look at it, um, that America is not going to make long-term investments if, for the welfare of the Yemeni people, for the development of a, Yemen, a strong Yemeni state outside of the regime. How about corporate interests? Have they built McDonald's and that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah. in, it, Sanaa <laughs> is a really interesting place. It's one of the most interesting uh, countries I've ever, or cities I've ever visited, in that I think there's one pizza hut uh, mm-hmm. No movie theaters. Is there a Kentucky Fried Chicken? Yeah, no. Yeah. There. Okay. So there are maybe two <laughs> fast food restaurants, and that's about it. So in terms of you know uh, the McDonaldization of the world, uh, it's it hasn't reached Sanaa to such a point. I wish. I think yeah. that they they're trying to lure invest a lot of investment in right now. There are a lot of international investors that I know of uh, directly who have been trying for years to get involved in Yemen and to invest in major projects in Yemen that would yeah. generate employment. Um, and the two major obstacles, one is security, which waxes and wanes. But obviously right now, um, with the situation in the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea, it's hard to build Aden as a, a world-class seaport, seaport when you yeah. have pirates on the loose. But in the fact, other when we went there, it was like a de- it was like a ghost town. That's right. Yeah. But the other main hindrance to international investment is the Yemeni regime, the regime of Ali Abdullah Saleh, um, <laughs> because it has been so much more interested in patronage and in protecting itself and perpetuating itself than it has been in looking after the interests of Yemen. So you have international investors who are very serious and who have connections to the Yemeni business community, but they can't translate their interest and their plans and their long-term goals into anything concrete because the regime uh, just doesn't have the foresight to to build uh, a more lucrative Yemen, I think. Um, it really is, yeah. and this is, Saleh is one of, I think, the cleverest uh, politicians and leaders in the Middle East. He's been in power since 1978, and mm. he very rarely seems to make a mistake. Um, so he's not about to be kicked out? I don't think so, no. Yeah. And uh, We I'm, should mention that he made the concession prior, the day right. before the February 3rd protest, that he wouldn't run again in it, and that his son wouldn't either. But Sounds familiar. His term doesn't run out till 2013. Yeah, so not only does that give him plenty of time uh, to uh, iron out uh, any inconveniences uh, in the meantime, but he's made this promise before, this exact yeah, okay. statement. Is there a state before. of emergency there, like in Egypt? Uh, no, not in the country as a whole, though um, in the South, where secessionist threats have mm. been, there's essentially a state of martial law from time to time. Protests what? are illegal yeah. And in the North, in the far yeah. North, uh, though there's a generally peaceful situation now, every time the Northern insurgency has started up, 
the military has blockaded the whole region, has cut off phone services, and has uh, stopped allowing any sort of NGOs or humanitarian oh. access to the region as well. So, um, what's this presidential poll thing uh, that uh, Clinton was, uh, Mrs. Clinton, uh, Secretary of State Clinton, sorry, was there? Uh, uh, what last year was it? And to she was there just a, a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, recently. and trying to. Uh, to see what's going to happen with this presidential poll, what what is that? What poll is that? What does that mean? Um, well, yeah. let's see. Uh, there are um, right now, as we said, the president doesn't face re-election until 2013. Though uh, it's interesting to note that very recently he proposed amendments to the Constitution oh. that would have allowed him to run um, again and again and again. Oh, I see. Um, and. President, uh, Secretary Clinton seemed to imply a few weeks ago that she wasn't very happy about these proposed amendments and that they didn't seem particularly democratic. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't until the protests uh, of February 3rd were threatened and were planned that President Saleh said he would uh, put those reforms, put those amendments on the side for now uh, and would not run oh, against the president. Oh. But this, he said this in 1999, and then before the presidential election, he said that the people had demanded that he run again. They had not accepted his, uh, his refusal to nominate himself, and so he ran again, and he won with a massive percentage of the vote. Um, what is uh, sort of a, a more pressing thing are parliamentary elections, which the president oh, postponed yeah. a couple of okay. years ago. He postponed um, them in 2009. In the face of an opposition boycott of the elections. And the, the, main, the main obstacle, the main uh, sticking point mm. here is that the commission in charge of elections used to be made up of representatives from each of the major political parties. Now that's been changed. So now it's made up entirely of judges, all of which are appointed by mm. the president and members of the ruling party. Oh, wow. The opposition bloc isn't pleased with this. They said that unless that commission is reformed, they won't participate in any parliamentary elections. And that's been the sticking point. Um, and why elections have been postponed and uh, why they may be postponed again, though they're scheduled for, I believe, April. So yeah, groups have been getting ready for these, um, so we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, we're coming in near the end of our time. I just wanted to ask you, what, uh, what are your own plans yourself, uh, each of you, short in a minute? Oh, absolutely. Each. Well, this summer I hope to return to the Middle East. I'm not sure where it will depend on the funding, but I'd like to oh. do more research either in Yemen or in another uh, neighboring country that's been uh, experiencing political turmoil and protests. <laughs> I think it's a really rich area for analysis, and I think it's pretty poorly understood. So there's a lot of work to be done. So wow. I'm going to keep plugging. Exciting. Yeah. 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 And well, uh, well, with the Yemen Peace Project right now, the two main things that we're working on are to keep fostering communication between Yemenis and Americans through our discussion boards, blogs, and such initiatives. And also, we're really trying to um, uh, express our solidarity with current demonstrations and current democratization efforts and to better understand the local act activists who are behind these efforts uh, outside of the political mainstream and to support and build... Uh, build avenues of communication mm -hmm. with local Yemeni activists on the ground so we can better support this movement for democracy in Yemen. And we encourage people who want to learn more to visit our website, www.yemenpeaceproject.org. That's right. You can find our blogs there, our Twitter feed, our Facebook page, and uh, our discussion boards, which we mentioned before. We'll do, we'll do our best to break it down for everybody. That's great. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dana Moss and Will Picard. Thank, thank you, you so much for having, having us. From the Yemen peace project.
This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity, and we're going to close with some music from Yemen.